0: Kiki mai, mai, and welcome to Our Changing World. Cor Alison Balance tēnei. Tonight we're finding out some results from one of New Zealand's longitudinal studies. These are programmes that follow a cohort of kids from the day they're born, checking in with them regularly and recording what happens to them as they grow. The famous Dunedin study which is shorthand for the Dunedin Multidisciplinary Health and Development Study, kicked off in 1972-73 and began with 1,000 children. Five years later, another University of Otago project, the Christchurch Health and Development Study, began following nearly 1,300 Canterbury children. More recently, in 2010, the Growing Up in New Zealand Study started following 7,000 children and their parents, it's an aspect of this study, run by the Centre for Longitudinal Research at the University of Auckland, that caught the attention of Sonia Sly. She's been wondering if all Kiwi kids have the same opportunities to maximise their potential, and what sort of hopes and dreams parents have for their unborn children. Her quest takes her to the University of Auckland, but begins on a trampoline.
1: Come, Mama. <laughs> Meet my three-and-a-half-year-old son. His favourite things are documentaries about cetaceans. He also loves dinosaurs and knows all the names of the ones that I can't even pronounce. He hates bedtime but loves bedtime stories. And he doesn't stop moving from the minute he wakes up in the morning until the very second he drops off to sleep. But when I look at him now as we bounce on the trampoline together, I see a boy who's, for the most part, what I had hoped. He's articulate, strong minded, which can be a challenge. He's creative, bossier than I would have expected. But in general, I feel that he's on the right track. I'm Sonia Sly, and on Our Changing World, I'm looking at the expectations that parents have for their unborn children, nurturing potential, and the importance of learning to deal with failure.
2: Before the child is born, you've got nothing tangible, your dreams are free to be whatever they want to be and often once a child is born you might taper those dreams depending on, I guess, your child's temperament or perhaps their abilities or whether they've got a disability.
1: Dr Elizabeth Peterson is part of the research team for Growing Up in New Zealand. It's a longitudinal study conducted through Auckland University.
2: So we wanted to know before the child was born what were the things that the parents really um, wanted for their child. I think we thought also that these might play out in reality, so what people really want and really hope for their children, we know they often craft their lives or they interact with their child in a way that enables these things to actually come to fruition. So we were interested. Is that conscious or unconscious? I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I think sometimes it's the way that we, um, the kind of activities we might take our child to, whether we take them on museum trips or whether we teach them to read before they start school. Um, But also the more implicit things like the way that we might um, reinforce a child or smile at a child when they do something that reflects the kind of values and expectations that we have. We are looking at different pathways that people take and we're particularly interested in not just looking at where things go wrong but where things go right. So we want to understand those different pathways and the choices people make and what, what the impact of those are, so that's very much the goal of
1: the study. A good friend of mine is six months pregnant with her first child. Jay is a professional, she's sensitive and caring, and she's a natural with children.
3: I'm
4: feeling really, really good. Proud of my wee bump, which actually popped, like, about eight weeks.
1: (laughs) Really? Jeez, that was fast. What are the primary things that you want right now? Six months in for your unborn child. Health, I think, so...
4: When I first got pregnant, I actually was quite scared that something terrible would happen. I thought that if I move too fast, it might fall out. (laughs) You just hear all these bad stories, so it kind of freaked me out a little. I think once I hit about that 12-week mark, when you sort of know that, oh yeah, the likelihood of miscarriages dropped through the floor, then I was like, okay, now nothing's going to happen, and I just felt a little bit more bulletproof. So it's just outside your um, control. Because you're like, oh my goodness, if I ate that, did I eat that? Was that a cold custard tart? And yes, it was. Um, <laughs> you know, mm. it's like, oh, darn tart. I've half eaten it, what should I do with it?
1: Oh, just it. Yeah. <laughs> now, yeah, back so to I'm Elizabeth, who says that actually what many parents want for their children is a reflection of what they really want for themselves, based on their own upbringing. So, do parents want to create their own mini-me? I
2: think you hope they are, don't you? That's right. I think it's always a bit scary you find out that they're not. But certainly I think we try to shape our children to have the kinds of values and things that we, we think are important. And how does class social status affect what those hopes and dreams
1: are built around?
2: We didn't find a lot of demographic differences in terms of socioeconomic status, in terms of the hopes and the dreams. When we looked at the data, what we actually did is we decided that we could most of the comments could be fitted under a hierarchy of needs, which is the work of Maslow. It's been around for a long time and keeps popping up. We have a set of fundamental needs, like we have a need for health and we have a need for shelter and for food and to be safe. And these are more your basic needs. And then at the higher level, we might say you might have needs to, be, um, to reach your potential, to have esteem, to be recognised, um, to be a good citizen... And that we thought that, um, that, in keeping with Maslow, we thought that maybe people who had less money and had more, came from more poverty would be more focused on those more fundamental needs for their child. So they might mention more about wanting to have safety or to have a roof and to have food on the table. Um, whereas if you had more money, you'll perhaps you don't even consider some of those more basic needs because they, you take them for granted. So you're more able perhaps to, to think about the bigger picture and want, you know, um, your child to be successful, to be fulfilled, to be all those other things. We didn't find that that split. Partly, I think, probably because New Zealand is a pretty advanced society, we don't have the huge disparities that you might have in other sort of more third-world countries that make them focus so much on those more basic needs. We actually found that parents wanted um, some of the higher needs and the lower needs. They wanted the happy and they wanted the healthy child. Where we did find some interesting differences was around um, education Mm -hmm. background, not so much um, socioeconomic status, but the education background of, of, of the parents. And in my friend Jay's
1: case, education was firmly at the forefront of her mind, even before she conceived.
4: When we, when we got this house, we, we live opposite this school. So that's always kind of taken into account when we when we kind of decided to live here. So the school's like right across the road. My sister used to live next door, actually, and it's got all the good schools. So all the schools from primary, intermediate and high school are uh, all kind of maybe decile sort of... Seven up. Is that one of the most important things to you? Education? Yeah. I guess
1: what it is is that if you can get good state education, then why not? <laughs> and like, you know, like being Chinese, like education is always really prized, is yeah, one of the most yeah. important things.
4: Yeah, I think for our parents' generation, they push the um, education. It just has quite good opportunities, particularly if the schools are quite you know, well-resourced, and the parents are quite proactive, so the school that we're opposite always has things happening, fairs or there's some fundraising or... Lots of
1: community activity. Very community activity-based. According to the Growing Up in New Zealand research, parents across the board wanted their children to be successful and have a good education,
2: regardless of their ethnicity or socioeconomic background. We thought that maybe we would get this demographic mix for people from more... With, who had less would be focused on more the rudimentary things. But we didn't find that. Um, we found that it was really that there was the people that most people wanted some really their child to be really happy and successful, as well as being healthy and some of belonging and having safety. Where you do start to see a difference is in the self actualization category. And self actualization Maslow describes it as reaching your potential, maximising your dreams, having all these opportunities, having a, a really good life. Um, and I think we, that's where we saw education differences and that parents who had higher educations were more likely to aspire to similar situations for their kids, so more likely to talk about um, them following their dreams Perhaps because they, were able, they are able to and they're in that kind of world where they're getting more diverse experiences. Their horizons are broader. They're able to, to investigate these things more. So they want that for their kids and maybe they will start to socialise their kids. We'll find out um, as we follow them. Maybe they're the kids' parents that will also take them to the museums and enrol them in the extracurricular activities because that's what they want them to do. They really want to maximise that kid's potential and they start early.
1: Maximising potential was key for me as a parent, and in doing so, my husband and I sent our son to a Montessori daycare from the age of one. Because, well, it aligned with our values and our views. So how does a school like this foster a child's potential from such a young
3: age? Um, it's all about respect, uh, respecting the child as an individual and observing what they're doing, what you think their interests are through what they're involving themselves with. Basically treating them as you would do any adult.
1: Lucy Hyatt is the centre manager at Montessori in
3: Kilburnie. If you're following the child and preparing the path for the child, you're putting the least barriers in their way to fulfilling their own potential. That's, that's the key. You're, you're observing what they need next. And how do you find those
1: needs differ between different children? Because I guess it's all, you've got different personalities and different children want different things at different times.
3: Yeah, yeah, huge differences. Basically, they all blossom from that respect and the calm, respecting other people, respecting the environment and thinking about other people, which they, they start to do quite early once you know, they're not allowed to do it in the, in the environment. Um, again, we, we, we teach the skills first, so we prepare the environment in a way they can learn the skills from and going from the easier to the, the graded on the, on the shelves. child will choose something to work with, a, a, a teacher will present it in a certain way, but the child's then left to explore and take it wherever he wants to go as long as he's respectful.
1: And how does that differ, do you know, to like other you know, preschools?
3: One of the main differences, we try not to, what we would call, hijack a child's interest. So shelves are prepared with equipment and we'll see what's getting used a lot. What's not getting used a lot will change for something else. We're not trying to make children busy because the the busyness is soon gone. We want them to really find something that interests them and then they will learn that concentration. Because
5: the white and black keys are um, the same as the colours of a keyboard or a piano. Tracy LaRue teaches a preschool-aged children at Montessori.
1: Standing in front of a row of mushroom-shaped domes, she talks me through some of the learning activities available on rows of shelves. They're arranged in boxes that allow children to explore
5: letters and numerals through to music. And that'll be your your flat and your sharp sounds. So even though a child doesn't know how to read music or anything, they learn sounds and pitch and tone. They can actually arrange it in the order, they can listen to which is the sharpest sound and which is the lowest sound. And
1: do the children have a sense of cultural identity at this age? Yes, they do. I mean,
5: we, we always um, sing our Maori songs and we discover, discuss other cultures, because so a lot of us are from different countries, I mean, there's just so many different cultures in our countries now, so these are all our continent boxes, but they know each box belongs to our continent. Something that's strongly promoted and
1: supported at the Montessori Preschool is respect for the environment and everything and everyone in it. So where does this idea of social responsibility fit into the growing up in New Zealand study? And do parents even hope that their children are going to grow up to be good citizens?
2: The last category that Maslow has is, is about being a good citizen. That was the least commonly endorsed category um, which I suppose makes sense. You know, you're pregnant. You're not really thinking about your child being a good citizen. You know, forty years and the twenty years in the future. But I do think it's interesting in the sense that, for example, fairly recently the OECD talked about what it meant to be a good citizen. What what did it take to have a successful life, and have thriving, well functioning societies. And what they found was that you need kids who are literate and numerate but you also need kids who have a sense of social responsibility. We need to be developing social responsibility amongst our young people because most of the problems we face today require a balancing of things like economic growth, environmental sustainability, prosperity and social equity. These are These are social problems.
1: What sort of things do you like doing at Montessori? Lots of things. I like jumping on a trampoline too much. You like finding out how things work, is that right? Yeah, it's because I don't know
5: quite a lot of stuff. You know a lot of stuff?
1: No. Striking a chord with the children's you own curiosity out. is key what to helping them to... broaden their minds.
5: At the moment they're really interested in science experiments. All of them? Yeah, quite a few of them, yeah. Okay. yeah. So, so what kind of activities do you oh, do? Well, like today we just did one using ice to see which block melted faster. One with am um, salt on top or the one without salt. And we discovered that salt makes things melt faster.
1: Well, I noticed one of the things he sort of teaches, you know, like Esha's really into sort of jumping off things. And, yes. you know, you can see that he has a sense of achievement from yeah. how high he can jump. What happens if the child fails? Do you encourage them to keep
5: doing it? Or? Yeah, we, could, we just say it's OK. We practice makes perfect. And um, if they need help, then we help them. It's a challenge for them as well when they've got up there. If they didn't get it right the first time, they love to keep trying. If he's lost his nerve and after the first time he's perhaps hurt himself, he might, for the first next couple of tries, ask us to help him jump off, which we oblige and do, and we just keep encouraging them to do it. Maybe, yeah. Failure is invariably part of what it takes to become successful
1: and to reach our potential. We all experience failure as part of learning, but Elizabeth says that we don't deal with failure very well at all. And from primary school age, those who are achieving well are separated from those who are not, which can have detrimental effects and inhibits a child's potential for growth.
2: Yeah, I'm really against making it really clear who's at the top of the class and who's at the bottom of the class. We're really bad at that in New Zealand in reading. I think we do group a lot in primary school for reading ability. In my child's class there was a reading tree from level 1 to 20 and it had every child's name pegged against a point on that tree um, that was movable on a bit of blue tack, and I was pretty appalled when I saw that. I came in one day and the kids were teasing each other and moving their names around the, the level on the chart. But there's no chart for maths, there's no chart for PE, there's just one for reading so kids know very quickly where they are in reading. I mean, We've always had the blue books and the green books and the red books and kids do work out pretty quickly which group they're in but it doesn't need to be that much in your face like on the wall. I mean Auckland Grammar does that too right they have their classes A stream through to the bottom stream and then they're ranked within the class. I think that that creates the wrong kind of pressure personally. It inhibits a person's ability to grow and to learn because they think they're restricted Yeah, have too they'd, far they'd to you've put a ceiling on those kids. You've already said that you're in the top stream and you're in the bottom stream. How does a kid, like, say, in primary school who knows that they're on level 1 or 2 in reading and they've got a kid in their class on level 20 in the reading, how do they ever think that they're ever going to catch up? Similarly in, in a secondary school, if you're in the bottom stream and you're ranked 30th in the class, how are you ever going to think that you could ever be... An amazing entrepreneur, but it, you could be right I mean you might not be an astronaut if you 're in the bottom stream. there probably is you know, but it doesn 't mean that you can 't reach your potential and and do good things because we can grow, and maybe the environment 's not right for you maybe you 've got stuff going on in your home life that 's actually affecting your ability to study hard. Um, we know that kids don 't enter universities with the same level of privilege and we need to equalise that playing field. Um, once they get here, they might flourish, but we can't always put their ceilings on people and it really affects their their confidence. I know my brother the other day was saying that um, he was um, talking, kids that he knew that were in the B-stream at school, he said that they never really ever got over the fact that they were B-stream B students. They never really fully believed in themselves because they knew there were always people that were smarter than them. And yes, we know there's people that are smarter than us, but it's about how much that affects our sense of self and um, whether we still believe we have the capacity to do more.
1: Laying down the foundations for growth and nurturing potential isn't just about teaching confidence, but learning to push past failure. And it's all to do in how we think.
2: So a growth mindset is this idea that, that you learn from your mistakes. Well, no, not so much that. It's about that you can grow as a person. Trying, if you get something wrong, you keep persisting. It's about believing that, you can change. Whereas a fixed mindset is about believing that you can't change who you are, that you're stuck that way. So we typically talk about it in terms of intelligence. So people who have a growth mindset believe that they can grow their intelligence, and people who have a fixed mindset think that they can't change their intelligence. And Carol Dweck's done a lot of work on this, um, arguing that what we want to encourage, and we're now getting growth mindset schools um, and growth mindset businesses, um, that it's about... We want to develop this attitude towards growth and see that we can change. But one of the things that I think is really important that that hasn't really been got at is it's not so much believing that you can change. A key part of this has to be learning from your mistakes. Um, So I can believe that I can always change and I can always be a different person. But I also a key part of that is actually, if I make a mistake, will I stop? And learn from that. And maybe that's the key of a growth mindset. Not so much believing you can change, but actually the response to that to that setback. And that's what this data is is looking at. And it's exactly what we seem to be finding. Um, this response to failure seems to be key to actually success. And that those who have a positive response to failure or a setback that go and ask for help, that um, pick up this the marks from the lecturer or the tutor and actually read the feedback and learn from that, they're the ones that are performing better at university. That ability to, to believe that and to know that with effort um, that you can grow. And that's what I mean by praising a child around, not just saying, good work, nice job, you actually say. Because you can over a child, apparently. <laughs> yeah, that, well, you can over the product of a child. What you need to say is good work, great job, I really like the way that you tried really hard and emphasising that it was the process of trying and practising and persisting that led to the outcome rather than just being intelligent. Because if you think it's just about intelligence, when you get something wrong, that's when the problem happens. So kids who have a fixed mindset, if they fail at something, they're more likely to give up because they think, oh, I can't do it, I'm stupid. Whereas the kids with a growth mindset, when they have a difficult problem, are more likely to say, OK, I need to try harder. What did I do wrong? How can I learn from that? At what age do you start to
1: recognise that a child has a, a growth mindset, for instance?
2: Um, I started really early hammering it into my child. Um, I think... Kids first start to pick up differences in abilities when they hit school. They start to realise that some kids in the top group, some kids in the bottom group, and there are differences there. That's when I think that really becomes in their face. But I think we can start talking about it really early. So I used to have my three-year-old, used to love playing with cars, and he would race them around, and he would say... Which car do you want to win, Mummy? He wanted me to say the fastest car or the best car, and I'd say I want the car to win that you know that that's tried the hardest and practiced the most. <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of wanted, and and the thing is, it paid off because sort of later I saw him playing with his with my dad a game of cards. It was a memory game, and Isaac was actually very good, you know, the memory card game. And when grand, his granddad wasn't actually concentrating very hard at the time, and Isaac was doing winning and Isaac said it's okay granddad you just haven't practiced enough you know he was attributing his success internally to his practice and I was like oh I've done it (laughs) yeah Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if it will stick with him but I keep trying to just reinforce that it is his effort that is what leads to him being good at things if he doesn't try hard and he doesn't do well then there might be a reason for that I mean, he can try hard and still not do well, and that 's okay it 's about saying everyone not everyone can do everything so what is what is the purpose then of research like this? I want to try and get more discussions just in the classroom around normalizing making mistakes. I think it is happening in, in some primary schools but also in secondary schools. I want to sort of argue around having opportunities for students to fail early, to try something, get feedback early so that it's not such a high-stakes end of assessment, end of the course where it really matters that they can actually get feedback along the way to make it more acceptable rather than putting all this pressure on just success and success being... The, the important thing when, in actual fact, the process to success is more important. So,
1: so what school are you going to go to?
2: Oh, do you think you'll miss Montessori? Do
1: you think you'll miss it
5: here? Yay yeah. Yay. <laughs> <No. laughs> <Here, sir. laughs> yay, yay.
0: Thanks, Sonia. And Sonia was speaking to Elizabeth Peterson at the University of Auckland, as well as Lucy Hyatt and Tracy LaRue from Montessori Preschool in Kilburnie, Wellington. Thanks for listening to this Our Changing World podcast check out our webpage for photos and web features. rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. Kia ora mai. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.